Let's move on to what is chapter 3, if you're following along in Demchroder. It's uh, the shape of spectral lines. So we've talked a little bit now about how to measure the line shape or how to measure the uh, frequency spectrum of, of light. And so depending on what you're trying to measure, if you uh, send your light, let's say it comes from uh, a tunable laser and you send it through some sample and you plot the intensity coming out as a function of the frequency, uh, you may see some spectrum that looks like this. Each of these peaks corresponds to, um, this is not clear whether that's absorption, I guess these are absorption lines. Each of these peaks corresponds to absorption by some particular molecule, or some different uh, degree of freedom of the molecules. And if we zoom in on these lines, they generally have a shape that looks something like this. And so we want to describe in detail what this line shape looks like and what different mechanisms can alter that line shape. So a little terminology. This is called the line profile. So this is just a zoomed in picture of one of these absorption lines. It has a particular characteristic width, which we call the line width. And we'll define that as the full width half max. The central region within that line width we'll call the line kernel. And outside the line width, we'll call it the line wings. So just some terminology so we're on the same page. Then we can talk about what happens just using our classical electron oscillator model, what line shape we would expect. We've actually already derived this. We found it was a Lorentzian line shape. And what we said is if you had an atom that was excited or uh, the charge in an atom or molecule were displaced from equilibrium and allowed to, to uh, return to equilibrium, it would do so oscillating at some resonant frequency, some characteristic frequency of the, uh, of the force that binds it to its uh, equilibrium position. And it would have some decay constant that describes how long it takes for its oscillation around equilibrium to decay. So this term gamma, which was the decay rate, is related to the decay time, tau, by well, gamma is 1 over tau, or tau is 1 over gamma. We call that uh, decay time the mean lifetime. So if you have a whole series of oscillators, you displace them all from equilibrium the same amount. Um, in the classical picture, tau is the time it takes the oscillators to, uh, to vibrate to a, or as they vibrate to decay in amplitude to a point where their amplitude is 1 over, um, I'm sorry, amplitude is 1 over e to the minus 1 half, which means the power decays to 1 over e. Um, or in the quantum picture, tau is the time it takes, um, tau is the time it takes half of the atoms to decay to the lower state. Okay, so if tau is finite, meaning gamma is not zero, if there's some damping, then there's some shape to the spectral response of our material. So if we plot, if we say that the, um, the function x of t, x represents the displacement of a charge from equilibrium and is given by this expression up here, if we write that as the sum of a bunch of sinusoidal terms, so x of omega is the amplitude of the sinusoidal term that has frequency omega. And so in phasor notation, this is the amplitude, and this is the phase of a phasor that has amplitude x of omega and oscillates at a frequency omega. And if we add up all the different phasors, different frequencies that contribute to this function x of t, then we'll get the function x of t. So this is just Fourier transform, saying that x of omega is the Fourier transform of x of t. And so we can define what x of omega is in terms of x of t by inverting this relationship. And this tells us that if, uh, 
if x of t has an amplitude which is decaying in time, then this will have multiple frequency components that contribute. OK, so we'd seen that before. And we saw that that gave rise to a Lorentzian line shape. So a couple, let me put up on the board a couple things that we're going to um, see a lot today. The intensity distribution is a function of omega. That's Lorentzian. So if there's some central frequency at which this line shape is centered around, that's the uh, frequency of the, the line. Then we call delta omega the detuning from that line center. And we can write this Lorentzian absorption profile as some peak value times a Lorentzian line shape. And Actually, at delta omega equals 0, this should equal i naught, i at 0. So I have to have the gamma over 2 squared in the numerator. So there's a Lorentzian line profile. We use that a number of times today. Um, another relationship that we're going to use quite a bit today Is this definite integral? And I hope I got that right, although I can't remember right now if the lower bound here is 0 or minus infinity. And it would result in a factor of 2 difference. Does anybody? No, off the top of their heads. Okay. Um, okay, so there's a particular line shape that corresponds to the material that's absorbing light, and it comes from the fact that there's some damping in the material. It's the internal intrinsic damping, and it gives rise to what we call the intrinsic line shape or the natural line shape of the, the material. Now, there's a number of things that can broaden this line shape. Um, some of the things are going to affect all the atoms in the material the same way. So for example, collisions with other atoms, if you have a high pressure gas as opposed to um, a low pressure system where each molecule can be thought of independently, then the collisions can affect the uh, behavior of the molecules. Essentially, if you have these little oscillators and we think of them as oscillating um, and exponentially decaying to equilibrium, if they're bumping into each other, then that's another mechanism with which they can lose their energy. So collisions will alter the line shape. It will alter the length of time it takes oscillating atoms to reach, the, uh, reach equilibrium, to decay to equilibrium. And so that will affect the line shape. Um, interaction with strong fields, like, um, like a, a laser that's incident on the material, will affect all the atoms equally. And that is another mechanism that will broaden the line shape. We'll describe that in, in detail. This is called homogeneous broadening. Homogeneous because it affects all the atoms the same way. So the opposite of that is inhomogeneous broadening. We'll talk about some mechanisms that produce inhomogeneous broadening as well. And these are mechanisms that will affect some of the atoms differently than others. So if you have some ensemble of atoms, and each atom has this natural line shape, but some of the atoms have something happen to them that causes, for example, this, uh, this resonant frequency to shift, then some of the atoms will see a shifted resonant frequency, others may not, and so you'll, when you average over all of them, this gets spread out. And a mechanism that causes that is the Doppler shift. So you have atoms moving in all different directions. Each one has a Doppler shifted resonant frequency. 
And so each atom has a Lorentzian profile like this with its frequency shifted due to the Doppler shift. And when you add all those up, the effect is a broadened, broadened line width. And that's called inhomogeneous broadening. Okay, so starting with the natural line width, um, we said this was a relationship between x of t and x of omega. This is just the Fourier transform of x of t, the displacement of a charge pushed away from equilibrium. And if I do this transform, I get the amplitude of the different spectral components. Okay, and the amplitude of the different spectral components should be proportional to how much intensity is absorbed by um, by the atoms. Okay, so doing this integral, um, I can do this in phasor notation pretty easily. I can say that cosine omega naught t looks like e to the i omega naught t plus e to the minus i omega naught t all over 2. Thank you. That shouldn't be there. That should be a minus. Like that. Okay, so if I integrate this, um, I can combine the exponents. The x naught over 2 comes out. And I have two terms one that looks like. Um, now we'll call it we'll call it minus i times I can write this as minus i gamma t over two. So I have minus i times minus i gives me negative one gamma t over two. Um, this would be minus omega naught t. That would be plus omega t. So I'll pull the t's out. And I have a term which looks similar but has the opposite sign for the omega naught term. Okay, so the nice thing about writing this expression as a phasor is taking the integral is simple. It's just dividing by i omega. And now let me call that entire term omega prime. I've got the integral of e to the minus i omega prime t. That's going to equal um, that's going to equal one over minus i omega prime times the function. Okay, so when I evaluate this integral, I get minus i times this term. And then I get a similar term over here. And that's what I have here. I've included the uh, constant factor of 1 over the square root of 2 pi in the expression in the notes, and I've multiplied through the i squareds and grouped the terms over here that depend on i. Okay, so I have two terms, and if I'm interested in examining the line shape, I'm interested in frequencies that are close to resonance, so I'm interested in omega being close to omega naught. And if that's the case, um, this term becomes large because its denominator becomes small, uh, whereas this term is small. Omega and omega naught are similar in, in magnitude, so this is like 2 omega naught. So this term I can neglect. And just I can look at the shape of this term to extract what the shape of the, uh, the line width will be. Okay, so the intensity that will be absorbed, or if I illuminate this with an intensity, with a beam that has some component at frequency omega, then x of omega tells me how much the atoms are 
displaced, or the charges are displaced by this beam. And the absorbed intensity is proportional to that displacement squared. It's a force times a velocity, and both of those are proportional to the displacement. So it's proportional to the displacement squared. So if I just take, and take the magnitude of this term and square it, I get this expression here. You can see in the denominator I've got this um, delta omega term squared and this gamma over 2 term squared. And I've written this now with uh, appropriate constants to normalize it, so that if I integrate this over all delta omega, this will integrate to 1. So the, the constants that I hit here, the x naught, um, I'm not that concerned with because I end up normalizing the final expression that I get. So what's L? L, 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 so L just stands for Lorentzian. It's, it's a, the Lorentzian function. Sorry, like, what, what that, that and it's, it's this it's this term right here. OK, so this is a Lorentzian line profile. Um, couple things we can say about it. We can say that um, if I naught is the total intensity in um, if I naught is the total intensity within this profile, meaning for instance, it's the total intensity that gets absorbed by the material when light goes through it then the intensity, the spectral intensity at a frequency omega is related to the total intensity being absorbed by the total intensity times the Lorentzian profile. Would I not be the area under the curve? So I0 is the area under the curve. And this I0 is different than that I of 0. Okay, so. Um, we can look at the Lorentzian function. This integrates, if you integrate it over delta omega, this integrates to 1. And so what it's saying is um, I0 times L delta omega. If you integrate the, in, the spectral intensity over all frequencies, the total amount of um, intensity being absorbed is what happens when you, the right-hand side is integrated over all frequencies. This term integrates to 1. And that's how we're defining I0. Um, but at omega equals 0, we can see that uh, we have a gamma over gamma squared over 4. And so if you evaluate it delta omega equals 0, then the value for this Lorentzian line shape is 2 over pi gamma. Okay, so the peak intensity. The peak spectral intensity right here is 2i0 over pi gamma. And i0 is the integrated intensity over the whole thing. Okay, so that's the natural, um, the natural line width, and I guess I didn't, I didn't quite uh, finish by calculating the line width. What, one thing we can do is we can compare the line widths we have when the line is broadened by different mechanisms. So here, if we ask what is the line width of this Lorentzian function, um, we can find that by solving for how much the frequency needs to be detuned for the in spectral intensity to drop to half of its peak value. And so we want to solve for this point right here, omega 1 half, and twice that value will be the full width half max. Okay, so we can say we need um, This is the value when detuned some distance delta omega sub 1 half. We're going to set that equal to half of the on resonance value, which is just 1. 
Okay, so um, solving this, delta omega 1 half squared plus gamma over 2 squared equals 2 times gamma over 2 squared. Right, so bring this to this side, delta omega 1 half squared is equal to gamma over 2 squared. So delta omega 1 half equals gamma over 2. This distance then is gamma over 2. So the full width half max is gamma. So gamma, which was the decay rate, is also the natural line width. And that's measured in radians per second. So it's a natural line width when you're plotting the line profile as a function of omega. If you were asked for the natural line width or in terms of hertz, in terms of linear frequency, you'd have to divide that by 2 pi. Okay, so let's look at a mechanism that will change the observed line width. Um, and the first mechanism we'll look at is Doppler broadening. Okay, so an atom that has a natural frequency of omega naught, if it's moving, then that natural frequency gets shifted due to the Doppler shift. It's moving um, relative to the incident light, meaning it has some velocity component in the direction of the light. The resonant frequency will get shifted by k dot v. Right? k is omega over c. So when we dot this with a velocity that has units of, of angular frequency. And so what this says is, if the velocity is in the direction of the incident light, that means the object's moving away from the light source, we'd expect the Doppler shifted frequency. Um, it says the resonant frequency goes up. That means you need a higher frequency light source because since the object's moving away, it gets that frequency gets shifted down. So it has to get downshifted onto resonance in order to interact resonantly with the atom. Is that clear? Shall I say it again? Or? Um, so at thermal equilibrium, you have atoms moving around in all directions. And so assuming that your material isn't, does, has no bulk velocity but is, is uh, macroscopically stationary, then you just have the thermal motion of the, the molecules. And we're only concerned with the velocity component in the direction of the, the incident laser beam. So if we call that direction z, we don't care about transverse motion of the molecules. They won't have a Doppler shift. But the components that have a motion along z will shift the Doppler frequency, or will shift the frequency due to the Doppler effect. And so we can ask how many atoms will have a velocity between v sub z and v sub z plus delta v sub z. So what is the number density of atoms with a velocity at v sub z? So that number density we describe by little n. And then delta v sub z um, is the, the width in velocity. So this gives me a total number, um, total number per unit volume of atoms with a velocity, v sub z. So if n is the total number of atoms per unit volume, and the system's in thermal equilibrium, And we should be able to say that the number of molecules with a velocity or with an energy E, call it delta E relative to the ground state, should look like E to the minus delta E over KT. Just the Boltzmann distribution. Okay, so now the energy relative to a stationary molecule is just kinetic energy.
And if we assume that the KT of energy, the thermal energy, if we can treat that as kinetic energy of a molecule with some velocity, I'll call it V sub P, it's the most probable velocity of the molecule. So this is like the average kinetic energy of the system equals kT. Then I can write this expression as e to the minus 1 half mv squared over 1 half mvp squared. And the 1 half m's cancel out. And I get this term right here. This is the number density of molecules that I have. This then gives me the fraction that are moving with the speed v sub z. And if I integrate this over all possible velocities, so I integrate from, I guess, negative infinity to positive infinity for v sub z, this relationship here tells me that I get pi over a where a is 1 over vp. So if I normalize to that, I get square root of pi vp. That's the normalization factor, and it comes from that definite integral. Okay, so if I integrate over all possible velocities, this gives me the total number of atoms that I have. Okay, so the fraction within an interval dvz is given by this, this expression here. So I'm going to use that to write the number density of molecules that have a resonant frequency at omega. So if I take this expression for the Doppler shifted frequency and I solve for the velocity in the z direction, I assume that k is in the z direction. This is kz times, or k times v sub z. If I solve for v sub z, I can write it in terms of c omega naught and omega. And then I can differentiate this expression and get d omega in terms of dvz. And then I can plug into this expression here um, my value for dvz and convert this expression not into an expression of uh, the number density as a function of v, the velocity, but I can convert it into a number density as a function of resonant frequency. Right, there's a linear relationship between the resonant frequency and the velocity. I'm just applying that linear relationship and re-expressing this number density as a function of velocity as a number density as a function of frequency. How do you get, what, how do you get from, from v to omega, like c of omega and z to omega? Right here? Yeah. So it comes from this expression over here. So I say omega is equal to omega naught plus k dot v. And that's equal to k times vz, because k is defined as being in the z direction. So I'm just solving for vz. Um, omega minus omega naught oh, equals k. K is uh, uh, k is c over omega naught. Right? Uh, omega naught over c times vz. So, yeah, just. So I have an expression for Vz in terms of omega that I substitute into this expression. And this tells me the number of density of molecules that have the resonant frequency at frequency omega. And now that's a Gauss, that's has a Gaussian distribution. So for each molecule at a given frequency, um, for each molecule that has its own, whatever velocity it has, it has this Lorentzian line profile centered at omega naught, or I should say centered at omega, centered at omega, which is related to how fast it's moving. But for your entire ensemble of atoms, you have atoms moving in all different directions, and there's this spread. So some of them, you can think of it as uh, the sum 
of a Lorentzian line profile. See, this is omega naught, that's omega. Think of it as the spread of the um, sum of each individual atom's Lorentzian line profile. And those, the uh, number density of the atoms is weighted with a Gaussian function. So that sum gives you an envelope, which is what you would see as the absorption line profile. Okay, so that expression was a Gaussian expression uh, for the number density of atoms, and that's the uh, intensity profile. The absorption profile then is uh, proportional to the number density of atoms, so we get this expression. Again, these, this numerator here is just there so that when you um, integrate this over all possible frequencies, you get I0, the total absorbed intensity. And so we can ask what the line width of this is. And that just involves setting the, this exponent, this exponential term, equal to 1 half. I think it's worth working out the math, because then you can see where some of these natural log terms come from. Um, so we have e to the i, e to the minus, I'm just going to do it for the general case, e to the minus ax squared. Um, that's a Gaussian function. And if we ask at what value for x this decreases to 1 half. At x equals 0, this is unit magnitude. So at x sub 1 half, this should equal 1 half. And so to find that, I just take the natural log of both sides. The natural log of 1 half is minus the natural log of 2. The minus signs cancel out. So. x sub 1 half is equal to the square root of 1 over a times the natural log of 2. And the full width half max is twice this value. Which I could write as square root of 4 over a natural log of 2. OK, so here's the full width half max for this profile. It has the form that I show up here, square root 4 over a natural log of 2. You can see the natural log of 2. Um, you have to figure out what a is. a is yes, c over omega naught vp. And I've written vp now in terms of kt. And when you do that, you can work out the math for yourself. But this is what you come up with for the, the line width. So you can see, for instance, that low mass molecules or atoms, hydrogen, for example, Doppler broadening is going to be significant. Low mass tends to move very, for a finite amount of, uh, for kT of energy, that translates to high speeds for the low mass molecules. Um, and the high speeds correspond to large spread in their Doppler line width. OK, so let's calculate the natural line width of the sodium D1 line. So we've seen the uh, sodium doublet line already in the test. It's at 589 nanometers. So the uh, natural line width, or the natural lifetime, the, the radiative lifetime is 16 nanoseconds for this transition. So what that tells us is 1 over the lifetime is the line width. So 1 over tau is the line width in terms of omega. We divide that by 2 pi, we get the line width in terms of frequency. So we have 1 over 2 pi times 16 nanoseconds. That works out to about 10 megahertz. So gamma is 1 over t. So gamma is 1 over t. Right, gamma is 1 over t. And gamma is the line width in terms of angular frequency. 
Um, if you're calculating frequencies and you're going to use terms like megahertz, then you should really be using linear frequencies. If you're going to calculate omegas, you should call this 10 to the 9 or 10 to the 7 radians per second. Usually when you see hertz, that suggests it's a linear frequency. Okay, so that's the natural line width. Let's see how much this would get broadened um, if this sodium were at, say, 500 Kelvin. So we have our expression for the Doppler broadened line width. Um, I took the expression, this had a uh, omega naught in the numerator. I replaced that with F naught just so that I could uh, get the linear line width rather than the angular line width. So F naught over C is 1 over lambda. Um, 8 kT, T is 500 Kelvin, K is the Boltzmann constant. And then the mass of sodium, you can look up. Here it is, it's uh, 1.6, yeah, it's 23 AMU. So 23 times 1.66 times 10 to the minus 27. When you plug all that in, you get a line width of about 1.7 gigahertz. So the line width is spread out by a factor of about 100, in this case, over the natural line width, due to the motion of the molecules. So why is this important? You might be interested in studying some particular um, structure of the absorption spectrum that's very fine. And maybe it comes from some prediction of, of, uh, of physics that you're trying to test. Or maybe um, it tells you something about the external magnetic field applied to the material or some other parameter that you're interested in measuring, um, but it's only a small frequency shift that you're trying to detect. If the line width is spread out to have a line width that's greater than the frequency resolution you're trying to observe, you won't see this type of effect. So if you're trying to detect a frequency shift of 50 megahertz in sodium, let's say due to the Earth's magnetic field uh, producing a hyperfine transition, hyperfine splitting of, the, uh, of this line, then you'd either have to cool the system down near absolute zero so that you didn't have this Doppler frequency shift, or you'd have to use some clever, cleverly designed experiment to eliminate the Doppler shift. And we'll talk about how you can do that uh, after spring break, I guess. Next week is after spring break. Okay, so there are methods for uh, avoiding this Doppler shift. Um, but the Doppler shift produces uh, a Gaussian distribution of uh, number density of atoms. And that Gaussian distribution is different than the Lorentzian line shape. Um, the Gaussian line shape has, uh, falls to zero much more rapidly. So the tails go to zero faster. So even if you have a Doppler broadened line, um, you can still infer something about the natural line shape by looking out here in the tails. If you measure the intensity spectrum, um, and you want to know what the natural line width of the spectrum is, but all you observe is, uh, is this Gaussian broadened, or Doppler broadened Gaussian profile, then what you can do is you can look out here in the tails, and what you'd see is this, this red tail. The natural line width, the natural um, the absorption profile due to the natural decay time would be greater than the Doppler shifted effect out here in the, in the line wings. And so you could fit a function to that that would go back here and tell you something about the, the shape of the uh, non-broadened line. In practice, um, what you typically have is you have some Lorentzian profile that's distributed in some Gaussian distribution. And if the Gaussian distribution is much larger than the Lorentzian line width, this looks like a Gaussian profile. If it's much smaller, it looks like a Lorentzian. Um, what it actually is, it's the convolution of the two, given here. And that's called a Voigt profile solid line here represents the combination of the Lorentzian and Gaussian that is, is uh, 
the actual profile you would see. Well, how do you ever get the first graph? This graph? Yeah, how can you get that if we don't have all the Lorentzians for a Lorentzian? This is just mathematically plotting a Lorentzian and a Gaussian. What you would observe is not this or this. If you had a, Gauss, if you had a Doppler broadened transition, what you would see is um, this Lorentzian here um, convolved with this Gaussian. So out here, far from the line center, any absorption that you have, any resid residual absorption, is due to the natural line width, not the uh, Gaussian distribution. What is the between both? Like far to large omega, is it due to convolution boson? It is, but the Gaussian uh, out here is zero. Okay. So it doesn't contribute. Okay, um, there's a couple more mechanisms to consider. Uh, one more homogeneous mechanism, collisional broadening. Actually, two more homogeneous mechanisms. Um, collisional broadening is what we call it when you have elastic collisions between molecules. And so the collisions don't cause the excited energy states to decay to the lower energy states. They just cause the molecules to bounce off of each other and maintain their, their internal energy states. If you looked at what those internal energy states are as a function of the separation of molecules, um, at, at far separation, the energy levels behave just like uh, the atom or molecule in isolation. But when they get close to each other, the, um, the fields from one can interact with the other and uh, disturb and affect the energy levels such that you get dips like this. So every energy level gets affected by the neighboring molecules when they're close enough to the molecules. And so the spacing between these energy levels, which corresponds to the frequency of radiation given off, changes when the molecules get closer together. Here as it's drawn, the spacing has gotten bigger, the frequency has increased. Okay, so normally if you had some line width right here, plotted as a function of frequency, but you have molecules that are close enough to each other that a significant fraction of them are uh, close enough to each other such that their energy levels get shifted, those molecules will absorb and emit radiation at different frequencies, and so the frequency distribution of the absorbed radiation would shift like this. There'd be some shift in the peak frequency, and there'd be some broadening as well, due to the fact that there's now a range of frequencies at which the molecules can absorb, depending on how close or how far they are from, the, uh, from their neighbors. So we can write an expression for the spectral intensity of the absorbed radiation. It's some constant times this term right here is the energy level difference between the two states that correspond to the absorption or radiation or emission. So that energy level difference for a single atom times the number density of atoms that have a given separation R from their nearest neighbor gives us the total energy um, in the material that's being absorbed from atoms that have a given separation from their neighbors. And if we multiply that by um, the probability, the absorption probability, this is the Einstein A coefficient, it's, it's a rate of absorption. That gives us an energy per unit time, which is the, the power. And this constant will account for the area and give us an irradiance. Okay, so this is kind of a convoluted expression that depends on understanding the intricacies of the quantum structure of the atom. So in practice, 
what's kind of interesting that you can do is you can learn a little bit about the quantum structure of the atom by absorbing by observing um, the effect that this collisional broadening has. What's that? Change the pressure. Yeah, and we'll see on the next, the next slide how this relates to the pressure. So the number density at a given distance r, um, that's, that's this term, n of r dr. That's the total number density. And again, it's weighted by the uh, energy that the molecular system has at a given distance r divided by the kt, integrated over all space. And we can then take this value for n of r dr, plug it in up here, and get an expression for the um, spectral intensity that depends on e to the minus something over kt. When we take the derivative with respect to temperature, that e to the minus something over kt gives us a something over kt squared. And so you can take the derivative yourself and work out all the terms, but we get a uh, di dt, the change in the absorbed intensity at a given frequency as a function of temperature, depends on the intensity that's absorbed at that temperature and the temperature and the uh, potential difference between these two states. So I, I mention this because it tells you that if you measure how much the absorption changes as you tune the temperature, and you compare that to how much the absorption is, if you know the temperature, you can infer the spacing of the states. So it's kind of an interesting way to measure the atomic properties of a material. So yeah, it's the it's the um, potential energy of the atom or molecule in a particular excited state. So it'll be potential. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that it's a function of R it, because it depends not only on the atom itself but on the Coulomb potential from the neighbor neighboring atom. Okay, so let's consider what happens in inelastic collisions where atoms collide and can actually uh, lose energy if they're in the upper state into the, through the collision. So they can transfer uh, electronic energy that they have into heat. In that case, the lifetime of an upper state has some component that depends on the time it takes or the rate at which it radiates away energy. And it's also going to have some component that, that comes from the rate at which it uh, loses energy due to collisions. So that'll be the collisional lifetime. So that collisional lifetime we can write as um, we can write in terms of the collisional cross-section of the atom. That's how big the atom or molecule appears to be in terms of physical, uh, physical collisions times the number density. That gives us a number per unit length. And if we multiply that by the relative velocity of the atoms, that gives us a number per unit time, which is a rate. So VREL is the relative velocity of two colliding atoms. Sigma i is their cross-section, and n sub b is uh, the number density. What is the b? That's a good, I was just wondering that myself. Um, well, I've got m sub a and m sub b. This comes from Demtroder chapter 3, so I'd have to go back and look and check, but I've got the masses of the, the atoms that are interacting as m sub a and m sub b. So it may be that I'm calculating this in terms of, of material b, but I'll have to check and get back to you. Okay, so the relative velocity um, 
we define as, as this expression, 8kt over pi mu. If you're interested, that comes from a um, similar type of thing where we define uh, the velocity as being the necessary, the, we define the most probable velocity as that necessary to have kinetic energy of kt. And then we consider the fact that when you have two atoms colliding with each other, if you want to take the relative velocity, you need to consider all possible velocities over all space. That's where that factor of uh, 2 over pi comes from. It's when you integrate the relative velocities over all space. Um, in any sense, we're just defining that in that, in that way. Uh, we'll use the reduced mass since we have collisions of, of two atoms or molecules. And we'll define a pressure as being the number density times kT. And in that case, um, you can substitute in the number density is PB over kT. And the relative velocity is this expression. And you can get an expression for the collisional decay rate. So that collisional decay rate tells you how much the line width is uh, broadened by the collisions. So there's still some natural radiative decay rate. And then there's some additional term that's a function of the pressure. So as the pressure increases, this becomes more and more significant. So all these, all these different broadening mechanisms increase as you move away from having a single atom in isolation. So that's pressure broadening. Um, there's also an interesting effect called pressure narrowing that can occur in the infrared. And in the infrared, the natural lifetime of molecules can be very long. It can be long relative to their uh, mean-free path. And their, you know, their lifetime is long compared to their mean-free time between collisions. And so if if this represents an atom, this represents the path it takes as it's decaying. Then if the surrounding molecules are closer than that mean free path, then it's going to bounce around a few times before it's decayed. And so the distance it's traveled during that decay is reduced. So it's essentially slowing down the thermal velocity of the atoms. And as a result, the Doppler broadening isn't as significant as it otherwise would be. So it's called pressure narrowing, but it's not really a narrowing of the natural line width. It's a narrowing of the Doppler broadened line width. So what we calculated before assumed that the molecule um, was traveling in a straight line with no external disturbances during the interaction time with, with the light. Okay, so one more mechanism, two more mechanisms to consider. Transit time broadening is the effect that comes from having a finite size beam and having molecules that cross that beam before they can decay or before they can fully absorb. So if the natural uh, lifetime of this molecule is such that it would travel the, the distance given by this orange arrow here, but your beam is smaller than that, then essentially the, the lifetime isn't limited by the natural lifetime. It's limited by the interaction time with the beam. So a shorter interaction time increases the line width. So if this were a, uh, if you imagine the atom coming into contact with a, a constant intensity laser beam for a finite period of time, and then the laser being turned off. Then the absorption profile would look like the, um, the expression for the classical electron oscillator integrated from 0 to t, however long the oscillator is in, in contact with the laser beam. Um, probably worth me writing this out. That, yeah, so let's see. X of t is x naught times e to the minus uh, gamma over 2 times cosine omega naught t. And if the absorption profile is proportional to x of t squared. 
Um, really what it is, it's a force dotted with a velocity. And both of these terms are proportional to x. So if I had, well, x of t, and normally I would integrate from 0 to infinity in order to find x of omega, which I could then use to find i of omega. If the interaction only occurs for a finite length of time, then I should only integrate for a finite length of time. And that broadens the width of this transform. No, is the this is x of t be represented by delta function as you chop this. And you introduce a sync profile. So I, I don't have time to go through the, uh, the full calculation, but um, that spectral width increases as you narrow the time window over which this interaction is occurring. And in a, if the material is passing through a Gaussian beam, um, the strength of that interaction is a function of the electric field. And the electric field in the beam, if it's a Gaussian beam, looks like looks like this. This is a Gaussian electric field distribution, which is typically what you have in a laser. Where you have some, um, some higher order Laguerre Gaussian or Hermit Gaussian mode. Um, but assuming we have the lowest order Gaussian distribution for the laser field, then the interaction of the material with the laser integrated over all time is related to the amplitude of the electric field at the point where the atom is. So at position r, and that's changing as a function of time because the atom is moving. So that position we'll call vt. So v is the component of velocity is transverse to the beam. That's really the way I should write that. I mean, in that case, I have a Gaussian term here, and I'm taking the Fourier transform of that. The Fourier transform of a Gaussian is another Gaussian. Okay, so the spectral width, if I have a Gaussian time window, the spectral width is going to be Gaussian. and will be given by this expression here. So we can again find the line width of this spectral line by setting this exponential term equal to 1 half. And in terms of angular frequency, that looks like this. You can see it has that uh, natural log of 2, squared to natural log of 2 term that we saw before. And in terms of the linear frequency, we just divide that by 2 pi. We can evaluate 8 natural log of 2 divided by 2 pi. That's about 0.37. So the line width due to, due to transit time broadening is about 0.37 times the velocity of the molecules divided by the width of the laser beam. The laser is focused very small. This obviously becomes more significant. You have a 
large laser beam, this might not be as significant. But if you need high intensity in order to see, in order to resolve some small absorption that you might be interested in, you might focus your laser down very small, and that might cause um, transit time broadening to be significant. Okay. So that one may be a That's a W. Yeah, it's a width. It's a Gaussian beam width. Okay, so last one, and then I've got a table that summarizes all of them that's, that's useful for calculations. Um, the last one that we're going to consider is saturation broadening. And this is what happens when you have um, a finite number of molecules in your system, and you pump so hard that you essentially deplete the region that you're pumping from. So you're trying to observe an absorption profile, but there's so much light being absorbed that there's no atoms left to absorb. So the absorption will decrease as you turn up the power. If you turn up the power high enough and you're completely saturating your system, you're not going to get any more absorption through. That's electromagnetically induced transparency, which we talked about. So if you have a two-level system, once you've pumped half of this, the atoms into the upper state, there's no longer any net absorption. For every photon that comes in that can stimulate an absorption, it can also stimulate a decay. There's no net absorption. So if we define the pumping rate of the system as P, then the transfer of population from state J to state K is P times NJ. It's the pumping rate times the number of number density molecules in the lower state. Um, the stimulated emission is also proportional to P, but it's also proportional to the number density in the upper state, so P times NK. And then there's also a relaxation or a uh, spontaneous emission decay mechanism. And we'll call that rate R. And these values are, come direct, are directly related to the Einstein A and B coefficients. Um, and in Demcharter, they use the A and B coefficients here, A and B. And I think in uh, Andrews and Demidov, they use P and R. Um, so in any event, when the system is pumped um, into if there's only these two states to consider, and it's pumped and it's in steady state, then the number of atoms being pumped up has to equal the number coming down right, in the steady state. So the number getting pumped up is P times N sub J. The number coming down is P plus R times N sub K. And I can write N sub K, the number density in state K, as the total number density minus the number in state J, if it's a two-level system. So I can solve for n sub j in terms of n. It's p plus r over 2p plus r. I can write delta n, the difference between nj and nk, then as 2nj minus n. And plugging in my value for nj here, I can get an expression for delta n as a function of the number density. So this is the, the number difference between the upper and lower state depends on the total number density divided by 1 plus s, where s is a so-called saturation parameter that depends on how fast I'm pumping. If I'm, pump, if I'm not pumping, p is equal to 0, s equals 0, the number density difference is equal to n. So it assumes there's no thermal population in the upper state, all the atoms are in the lower state. Um, if I pump at the same rate that I have radiative decay, then S is going to equal 2. And one-third, there will be a one-third, um, so there will be one-third of the atoms up here, two-thirds down here, so there's a one-third difference. And that would make sense because there's uh, one being pumped up and two coming down in any given interval of time. Okay, so this number density is proportional to the absorption. The absorption um, depends directly on the number density. The number density depends on this parameter s, which is related to how hard I pump. And so if I call alpha naught the absorption when the pump rate is small, okay, when there's no saturation, when the upper state has no atoms in it, and alpha naught is the absorption coefficient, then the absorption coefficient when it's being pumped, gets decreased by 1 plus s. 
So S is a saturation parameter. When S is equal to 1, the absorption has decreased to half. Alpha, so alpha is the absorption coefficient at frequency omega. Alpha naught is the unsaturated absorption coefficient as a function of omega. Okay, so this is with saturation, this is without saturation. This you would measure by putting in a, a low intensity beam and measuring the absorption profile. This is what you'd measure with a higher intensity beam. And I think the next... So the absorption decreases the most inside the line, in the line center, where the intensity is the highest. Outside the line center, in the wings, there's very little power being absorbed, so there's not much saturation. And so what happens is you start with a Lorentzian profile here, and you squash the center down due to saturation, but you don't squash the line wings down then you've essentially increased the line width because the full width half max, if the max is decreased, then you have to go further out to get to half of that value. And the increase in the line width goes as a factor of square root of 1 plus S0. So S0 is the saturation parameter at omega naught. You can express that as the intensity divided by some saturation intensity. So you can calculate how much the saturation intensity is. It's a function of these material properties. If you pump higher than that, then this saturation broadening is going to be a significant effect. OK, so in summary, we have all these different mechanisms that cause the line profile to have some width to it. Um, there's some natural line width. It's related to the upper state lifetime, tau, of a transition. We have the Doppler broaden line width, which depends on the temperature, because that's what affects the velocity. We have the pressure broadened line width, which obviously depends on the pressure, um, and the cross-sectional area for collisions. We have transit time broadening, depends on the speed at which the molecules are passing through a beam. Now that speed could be because the material is moving, like you might have in a dye laser, or it could be just due to the thermal motion of the material. If the entire bulk material is moving, this would be a homogeneous broadening and would produce a Lorentzian line profile. If this is a um, thermal velocity causing this, then this would produce a Gaussian profile and be inhomogeneous. And then there's power broadening or saturation broadening, where the natural line width is increased due to the fact that the peak is suppressed due to the uh, saturation. And this is a saturation parameter written out in terms of material properties. OK, so that's all for now. Um, your homework, which is due, is due in a couple weeks, it's all from this lecture, so you have everything you need to do the homework. Pretty much this slide is enough to do most of it. Um, but it's due in like April 2nd or something, because we have spring break, and then we have Cesar Chavez Day, the first Monday after spring break.